ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. The NT Farmers Association has just named its new Chief Executive Officer. Who is it? I'll tell you very, very soon. Also today, the latest news from the Bush Foods Conference, which has been held in Darwin. And in a moment, you'll hear from Ben Hayes at Undulia Station near Alice Springs, who this week has been battling a huge and very dangerous fire. There will be definitely stock losses because that moved so fast, unbelievably fast fire. We nearly lost the homestead. We were lucky we kept that under control around here. Pretty hot fire. This is all coming up on today's Country Hour. Hope you can stick around. We're going to start today, though, with some good news. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. Is it raining at your place this afternoon? I've got one text here that says it's bucketing on Bishop Street. Yay, finally. So someone here on 0487 99 A slow-moving band of rain this morning has drenched large parts of the top end, especially in the northwest. Just looking at some of the rainfall figures to 9 o'clock this morning, Cave Creek Station's had 50 millimetres, Vermella Cattle Station 90 millimetres, Beswick Bridge has recorded 76. There's been 37 mils at the Douglas Daly Research Farm. And the gauge at Uralba Ridge, which is a bit east of Catherine, 106 millimetres in the gauge. This is big rain. This is significant rain. David Connolly from Tipperary Station, well, he was flat out yesterday fighting fires. When I called him this morning... He was singing in the rain. Oh well, it's raining, Matt. How good's that? We've been, we've been just like everybody else. We've been beaten up by a bushfire, and uh, my troops have been spending a lot of time, a lot of day and nights, trying to control fire and backburn fire and block up fire. Um, and it's been a late wet, so we've needed the certainly needed the grass on the ground, needed the pasture. But uh, we woke up to thunder this morning, just before daylight. The thunder rolled through here, and it started to rain. We haven't measured yet because it's still raining, but I guess we're, we're starting to poke towards um, 25 mil now or, or an inch of rain in the old measurement, and there's a spring in the step of everybody here because at this stage it looks like that'll be the end of the, the firefighting. I only wish it had, uh, you know, the rain had go through some of my colleagues down in the central northern territory to try and put out some of those fires down there. Yeah. We're a bit luckier up here with our higher rainfall, uh, but, but really good, Matt. The lawn's already greened up, and... You know, the, the, deer, the deer are flitting around and happy and the butterflies are flying and we're all going to spring in our step. <laughs> and uh, your, your reference to, to deer is, uh, is, is fair dinkum. I actually saw a picture the other day. You've got a few getting around Tipperary, hey? Yeah, there's still a few deer uh, left around Tipperary here mm. um, from, the, from the Warren Anderson days, I guess. So there's a few just poke around the compound here. They're pretty quiet. Um, and they're just um, they're just in the compound, just around the houses and things here. So, uh, yeah, they're they're bouncing around this morning. Pretty happy to see some rain as well. <laughs> Is this the biggest rainfall you've had for the season? Yes, I was comparing. Um, I've got the rainfall charts uh, out, and I was comparing them. 
Uh, this time last year, we'd had six inches. Up, up until now, I always count the 1st of October as the start of the wet, and we'd had uh, in excess of six inches of rain by now uh, from the 1st of October last year. Yep. And so far this year, we've had 42 mil from the 1st of October. And it's, it's been in a couple of little uh, small falls. So, um, you know, we had, we had a bit of rain the other day and it, it, it doused some fires and then got hot again the next day and the fires all took up again and took off So on a strong wind. But um, so it's been a very slow start and been a very, very small rainfall. There hasn't been much rain, certainly compared to last year. So how hopeful are you now that the fire season for Tipperary at least is over? Yeah, I think our our fire season will be over here now. This uh, this gamber grass here now will turn all green on the bottom, and it, um, it it'll struggle to carry a fire now. So I think um, you know maybe on maybe it's wishful thinking, but <laughs> or the, maybe the power of positive thinking. But no, we might uh, we might be out of the woods here now. And as I say, I, I wish I only wish it was the same in the in the south or the central of the territory. Can you smell it? Like the the rain yes, dousing it, all of that black country, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful, and um, you smell the rain, and you can hear it hear it uh, falling on the tin roof. Nothing like just on daylight hearing rain on a tin roof, Matt. <laughs> it is a good news story for a Friday. Thanks for sharing time for the country hour, and bring on more rain. Yep, good on you. Have a great day. David Connolly at Tipperary Station spoke to him this morning. You could hear the spring in his step. Is it raining at your place this afternoon? 0487991057 is our text at the Country Hour. Someone is reporting in from Dundee Beach. 18 millimetres in the gauge there. Alan says, Matt, great news for those that got some good rain. In Casuarina, says Alan, we got just enough to dampen... The concrete. Looks like the northern suburbs might miss out again for a while. Bloody woeful, reckons Alan. And I got a text earlier on from Haggis, who's on the grader today. He's on the grader and says it's been flogging down at Acacia Hills. Bloody lovely. Reckons he might have to put a snorkel on his grader, says Haggis. <laughs> Dancing in the rain. I hope you're getting some. Just looking at the radar. Uh, looks like sort of Channel Point, Finnis River Country, getting a fair bit of uh, moisture as we go to wear. But, yeah, throughout the morning, there was just that slow-moving front delivering the goods, delivering more than 100 millimetres there to the east of Catherine. Uh, keep sending in your rainfall reports. We love it. We love this stuff. At the country hour, 0487991057 is our text number. Now, unfortunately, no rainfall in central Australia, which is a bit of a bugger because, as you know, so many fires in that region this week, especially near Alice Springs and places like Bond Springs and Undulia cattle stations. Uh, Ben Hayes, he's from Undulia. He's had an awful week fighting fires. He got a spare moment this morning to have a chat to Brashy about what the situation is there at Undulia. Let's have a listen. Mate, we're we doing all right. We we've had a bit of a rest overnight, and I think we we're around our fire. Like our fires, um, we've got it contained, pulled up at, at the moment, so we're doing all right. Um, Andy at the gardens, he's still back burning 
sort of through the Georgina range, through the Georgina Gap around around to Winnicky. He's doing that at the moment. Like he's back burning in there now, him and his crew. So from Julia's point of view, do you think you've got this sorted now? Are you are you on the front foot? Yeah, no, nah, we're in the front foot. We we we're kicking goals. We're doing real well now. We we've it took a bit of getting there, but we get we got there now. How much of Andulia do you reckon has burnt? Jesus, a fair bit, eh? Because we had another fire. We never realised we had it. Um, it was down on the Numbery Road, right down on the Loves Creek boundary, and it burnt there. And it, that burnt a lot of country, but it ran into country that it, like cattle had chewed. Um, so that pulled up on us. Um, I had that, and actually Nicole went down there, and her and my blokes went down there and just wet it out while we were up on this major fire. Um, so they got that out. But so oh, I would nearly say at least, Probably 60% of Undulia now is burnt, if not a bit more. Um, but yeah, all the north side of Undulia, north side, what I call north side, north side of the McDonald Range is there. It's, it's torched. There's not a lot left there now. Even trees, trees are just skeletons on the ground. Like it was a hot fire, very yeah. hot fire. And does that, it begs the question then, so have you got stock losses, you've got infrastructure losses? Have you had a, a chance to have a, a look around and see what's gone on with that? Oh yes, we've got. <clears throat> I haven't found any stock losses yet, but they're hard to find. They, they, um, there will be definitely stock losses because that moved so fast. That fire, like that, was unbelievably fast fire. Um, uh, yeah, I'd have infrastructure losses as, as well. Like we, we nearly lost the homestead. We were lucky we kept that under control around here. Um, but I've got pipelines that are burnt. I've got fences that are burnt. Um, I know out at the gardens he's got solar bores that the solar panels are just a puddle on the ground now they've melted that um, yeah she was she was a pretty pretty hot fire it's even even like the um, native like flora and fauna we, that that's that would have copped a hammering out of that I got to say for someone who's had sixty percent of your property burned out you're, you're sounding pretty chipper at the moment Benny Hayes but you still had to fight the other night to save the homestead so did you know the homestead was under threat or were you sort of taken by surprise by that well we we left the fire like that night it chased us off the off the front we we took off and we got back home because it's just too dangerous for everybody and we brought all our gear back to the homestead and when I got back I think we got back about midnight and we cut a few breaks around the homestead just to be safe but like we got up probably four o'clock in the morning and it was gone past the homestead but it was coming in still at us and it come over our brakes so it burnt all around me dump um it was licking i've got a, like a few shipping containers and stuff up there the flames were burning there like right on the edge of them licking them so we've 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 actually saved the homestead we burnt right around the back of the houses into it um and then it sort of yeah it just it just wouldn't stop it was had a mind of its own but now we're going right like Life throws a few challenges at you. This is one of them, I suppose. We come out all right. As Ben Hayes from Undulia Station speaking there to Brashy. Jane Hayes is just next door at the Garden Station. She had a chat to Victoria Ellis about the fires they've been battling. Thursday a week ago, we had some lightning or some dry storms around. There was uh, some lightning strikes. There were four fires that started. Andy went to check, well, he decided to pick one and went to that and I didn't see him again until Wednesday. <laughs> and, yeah, that's sort of been on the garden, on Andulia and back again onto, onto the garden. How much land has burnt? 
At this stage, talking to the fellas last night when they got home, there's probably roughly half of the gardeners burnt. How is everybody feeling about that? Well, haven't really had a lot of time to dwell on that. Um, the biggest thing has been to try to pull it up and um, try and block it from going and burning anymore, really. Have there been many cattle deaths or anything? Not that we know. There would have had to have been, though. Don't like to think about that, really. But for the heat and the speed of the fire, yeah, there'd have to be. Yeah, that's really hard. How much extra support has it been for you guys being able to collaborate with Andulia? Well, it's been huge. It's um, It's been Andulia. Um, there's been other neighbouring stations, Amberlindum, Yamba Station, Bond Springs. Um, we even had Bushy Park, which is getting a bit further on from us, come down and help us last night, which is awesome. But the number of people in town, and there's just too many of them to mention that have offered support, um, dropped their own businesses and um, come to help us at different times. Like the community support has been incredible. We are so grateful. You said uh, fire's still on the garden at the moment. Can you tell me what's happening there and where that one's up to? Yep. So um, our crew set out this morning to um, sort of burn, uh, do a back burn at the base of the range, sort of just directly south of the homestead um, to try to contain that section of the fire um, from coming any further north. Yeah, hopefully it all goes to plan. (laughs) Yeah, and hopefully that one can be taken care of and wrapped up and put out sooner rather than later and you guys can hopefully begin the recovery process as soon as possible, what what's sort of the next step in that recovery process? Is it too soon to ask? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, we need to just get it out first and then we'll need to regroup and see what needs to be done and then we'll develop a plan and go from there. Yeah, and get on with it like rural people do. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. You, yeah, you've just got to rise above it and keep going, don't you? Yeah, well, I'm admiring your resilience and everybody else's out that way, Jane. Yeah, well, what else can you do? (laughs) That's Jane Hayes at the Garden Station. If we head further north along the Stewart Highway, there's been some nasty fires near the community of Ali Karung, and it got a bit hairy there yesterday. Tony Fuller from Bushfires NT says crews are still at the community after an emergency warning was downgraded to a watch and act alert level yesterday. Let's have a listen to Tony. We've got to try and get some fuel and supplies to them this morning, but they're uh, trying to work with the local community. They're going to put some back burns in and around that community, but the threat certainly has gone. But interestingly, they had some rain on, on sections of the area they were going to burn, but there's still fire in other sections. So they've got uh, both ends of the scale up there and uh, our spotter plane had to be grounded because of the storms and the amount of uh, uh, lightning activity. So said that Mother Nature's throwing everything at us. That's Tony Fuller from Bushfires NT. Um, our reporter, the Alice Victoria Ellis, said she's bumped into Joe Clark, who's the farm manager for Centre Farm, and apparently their property is near Ali Karung. Thankfully, have managed to avoid fire.
So that's a bit of good news. It's an unfolding situation, though. Make sure you stay up to date via the ABC, your emergency broadcaster. Hi, I'm Dione Walsh from Range IQ, and I'm in Alice Springs teaching a grazing course, and you're listening to the Country Hour. NT Farmers Association has named its brand new Chief Executive Officer. It's taken months, but they've found someone. Who is it? I will be telling you soon here on the Country Hour. But first, let's have a tune and uh, country music guru Dan Fitzgerald's come running into the studio with a bit of country music news. Yeah, the CMAs, the Country Music uh, Association's Awards, were on last night over in the US. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's interesting, uh, the song Fast Car... It got two gongs yes. by two different artists. Um, the Fast Car was originally done by Tracy Chapman 35 years ago, and this year it was r- covered by country music superstar Luke Coombs. Luke Coombs. It went number one on the country charts and number one on the on the pop charts. It, it was, was quite huge. something. Yeah, yeah so uh, that took out the single of the year at the CMAs Yep. because um, of how well it went, and... Uh, with the popularity of that song, a lot of people have obviously gone and looked up the original by Tracy Chapman, um, and it has won Song of the Year. 35 years after its release. 35 years after <laughs> it was released, Tracy wow. Chapman won a CMA. She's the first black female artist, songwriter to do so. Um, yeah. Wow. That is that is cool. Uh, this is Luke Coombs' version of it. Hope you enjoy it this Friday lunchtime. You are tuned into the Country Hour. Up next, I'm going to tell you about a couple of new livestock indicators that have been launched. Luke Coombs and his version of Fast Car, which last night at the CMA Awards in the US took out Single of the Year. And as Dan told us, the original song by Tracy Chapman was awarded Song of the Year. It is eight to one. You are tuned into the Country Hour. Mean Livestock Australia has today launched two new market indicators For livestock producers, driven by the rise and rise of online livestock sales, MLA now has the online young cattle indicator and the online lamb indicator. To learn more about this, I had a chat to Stephen Bignall, who's MLA's Senior Market Information Manager. So we did an indicator review last year, Matt, and a lot of the feedback that we got then was MLA should increase uh, its coverage of different sales channels. So we've taken that feedback online. It's been a while um, in the making, but we have partnered uh, with online providers and, and generated an online indicator, both the Ollie for lamb and the Oki for young cattle. How do you think producers will use these indicators? Um, I think that for producers that are looking at selling online, it will give a really good understanding to those producers around the trends that are happening in the online marketplace. Um, The online lamb indicator is for um, animals, uh, suckers and lambs up to 24 kilos. And for cattle, uh, it includes weaner heifer and steers and yearling heifer and steers between 200 and 400 kilos. And so it'll provide trends. The lamb one is in dollars per head basis and the cattle, the online young cattle indicator uh, is in a cents per kilo live weight basis. In ways, is this just an ad for Auctions Plus? Uh, No, so all um, online um, sales providers were uh, 
you know, have, have been invited into this and, and we obviously want to expand throughput and we also want to expand the um, types of indicators, so a mutton indicator and the likes in, in the future. So um, everyone has been consulting and given the opportunity to um, contribute. And are those various organisations giving you data? Um, at the moment, uh, the, the pool of who we're pulling from is is limited, but like I said, we, we want to expand who, who we um, work with on this. At the moment, do you see any noticeable trends or differences, I guess, between the online market and the physical sale yards? I think what we're what the the cattle market is trending similar. Um, obviously, a lot of the transactions are sort of from that restocker side. Um, you know, is that restocker side of the market? So obviously, farmer to farmer. So it, it's tracking a lot what we're seeing in the sale yards in terms of from a trend perspective. The the key piece this indicator also offers, Matt, is it does allow actually um, for the first time, they're not breed indicators, but we do break out the performance of individual breeds. How big has online selling of livestock become in the last five years? Um, Online as a sales platform really boomed the rebuild and the and COVID obviously uh, occurred at the same time, and so we saw a lot of demand from uh, producers, both of cattle and sheep, looking to grow their herds and flocks. And and what the online platforms um, provided producers was the opportunity to source animals outside their local region. So feedback has been from producers that they want this, but also by covering an an, an additional um, sa- uh, sales channel. So we know that for for cattle, um, online transactions make up six percent of total trans transactions and for sheep, 9%. We wanted to provide producers with greater pr- transparency um, of, of what's happening in the in the market. And so by covering an additional sales channel, that being online, we're able to do that and provide uh, more, more pricing information to producers. And we know the more information leads to better decision-making. So, so that's, that's the premise for, for um, why we've done this. So the Ollie and the Oki now online. People can find it for themselves if they head along to the MLA website. Stephen Bignall, thanks for your time on the Country Hour. Thanks, Matt. Stephen Bignall from Meat and Livestock Australia. There you go. The Ollie and the Oki, they're up online right now if you want to check them out. Now, on the topic of red meat, the US is buying a big at the moment and has actually taken over China to become Australia's largest customer for beef this year. Tim Jackson is the Global Supply Analyst with MLA. He had a chat to Angus Verley about what's happening. I suppose in general, the most important part is that exports across the board are up. So beef exports are up 44% from the previous year. Um, lamb exports are up uh, 17% from the previous year. And mutton exports are up 51% from the previous year. And that's really good to see. But in particular... The fact that we're seeing strong demand across just about all of our major export markets um, and, and the fact that that uh, demand has held on and grown throughout the year shows that as we produce more red meat, um, there are people that want to eat it and there is that demand in the international market. And I suppose it it's probably no surprise that these figures are so high given that we know there's been such massive throughput through our abattoirs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've seen uh, in in the case of, of cattle um, throughput, uh, we've seen you know numbers kind of getting up above where they were last year and the year before, and that's reflected in the export figures. And of course, um, 
lamb production last year was at a record high, and we've been going over those numbers this year. And so um, it would be no surprise that uh, our export figures are going to match those quite high throughput numbers. And looking at some of the key export destinations, starting on beef, uh, exports to Japan, not so strong, but North America, huge growth in the past year? Yeah, so what we've seen this year so far has been a large increase in exports to the United States um, and a large increase to China as well, and then a bit of a decline to exports to Japan. What's really promising here is that exports to the United States are well up on year-ago levels. So the US was our largest beef market um, at about 27,500 tonnes, which was about twice as much as it was last year. At the same time, we've actually seen a year-on-year increase to Japan. Long-term, Tim, a a world population figure that gets thrown around a lot is that 10 billion people on the planet by 2050, which really isn't that far away. Should producers look at the figures you're talking about, look at that population growth and feel positive about the future? I think looking out into the future, there's absolutely uh, a great deal to be optimistic about. Um, As you said, that 10 billion population figure is really important. And the other point to note is that the number of people that are able to afford to eat red meat is growing all the time. We know that when people, you know, kind of enter the global middle class, the first thing that they tend to do with um, higher incomes is that they eat it and they buy, you know, higher quality protein and eat that. That's Tim Jackson, Global Supply Analyst with Meat and Livestock Australia, speaking there to Angus Verley. Year to date, the biggest customers for beef are the US, China, Japan, South Korea and Indonesia. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. Matt Brown with you this afternoon for the Country Hour. Have you had a bit of rain this morning? Zero four eight seven double nine one zero five seven is our text number. Some beautiful reports and stories coming in from cattle country. Ninety millimeters in the gauge at Vermella Cattle Station. Gary Riggs at Lakefield reporting twenty five. They've had thirty five in the gauge at Sunday Creek near Daly Waters. Seventy millimeters at Bloodwood Downs. Lisa at Sturt Plain Station says they've had a bit of rain and the fire is out which is wonderful. We heard earlier from David Connolly at Tipperary Station. He spent yesterday flat out fighting fires, and this morning the rain came and washed it all away. So we woke up to thunder this morning. Just before daylight, the thunder rolled through here and it started to rain. We haven't measured yet because it's still raining. You smell the rain and you can hear it, hear it uh, falling on the tin roof. Nothing like just on daylight hearing rain on a tin roof, Matt. 110 millimetres reported at Burdham Creek near Matarenka and 46 millimetres at Kadadi Station. This is good stuff. And dancing in the Apologies to those in Central Australia who I'm sure would love some of this to put out their own fires. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Billy Lynch is there this afternoon. Billy, what a beautiful morning for so many in the top end. What are some of the best figures in front of you? Yeah, hi, Matt. Um, well, if we start sort of in the, the Vic River kind of region, um, we've got Cattle Creek, uh, 27 millimetres. Um, 
Flora Rivers had 58 um, around the Catherine region. That's definitely where the better falls were. So 73 at Wandy Creek. Um, I think we've had our first ton for the season officially in our rain gauges with <laughs> Ural Bridge, um, 106 millimetres just upstream from Catherine. Yeah. Uh, Burdham Creek's reporting 110, so a few yeah, places raising the bat today. That's right. That's even better than ours, yeah. Um, over at Beswick, uh, 76. And then across the east, so Kiana's had uh, 36 millimetres. Um, well, 54 some... millimetres reported at Tenenbrini Cattle Station. There we go. That's another good one. Doris Bayless at Matarenka Station reporting 73 in the gauge. This is good stuff. Very good stuff. I can see on the radar that system that's delivered all this beautiful rain is sort of a big blob sitting off the coast at the moment. Still a little bit of rain around sort of Channel Point. I bet LaBelle Downs is getting some as well. <laughs> um, in terms of the weekend ahead, can people expect more of this? Potentially, yeah. I mean... All the ingredients are there, so there's going to be moisture. Um, there's no reason why we can't expect more storms across the north uh, this weekend. Occasionally, you get these big days, big thunderstorm days. You know, maybe it takes a day to recover. But um, yeah, if not tomorrow, I think Sunday and Monday should be another active day of thunderstorms across across the north. So no reason why we couldn't get another 50 to 100 millimeters in some of those. Those places. That is good stuff. Uh, in Central Australia, and um, and even sort of in that North Tenamai country, still places dealing with nasty bushfires. What are conditions like over the next few days for, for people in those situations? Yeah, well, I mean, today it's pretty hot across the Tenamai, the Lassiter, um, and south of Alice Springs. So... Not a lot of relief today. It's mostly sunny temperatures, high 30s, low 40s. Um, but across the Barclay District and um, even on the Alice Springs radar just to the northeast, we're seeing a few thunderstorms develop. Um, there's some near Ali Karung at the moment as well. Uh, we do think that there could be some moderate to heavy falls across the eastern Barclay District uh, later this afternoon and overnight. Um you know, maybe 20 to 40 millimetres with some of those thunderstorms. So that would be good. Yeah. Um, and then the, the trend for the weekend is that humidity spreading right throughout the Northern Territory. So even um, those places missing out today, the, the Tanami, the Lassiter, we, we should see thunderstorms basically spread right across um, southern half of the NT during Saturday and Sunday. So it's going to bring a mix of welcome rainfall uh, it will bring some lightning, um, and it does also pose the risk of some locally damaging wind gusts as well, so it's kind of the good and the bad with the thunderstorms. I've just got a fresh report in from Gary Riggs at Lakefield Station on the Sturt Plateau. Um, he can outdo your numbers here. I think we've got the Glenn Maxwell here of uh, rainfall figures. <laughs> uh, Gary's reporting 167 millimetres at his gauge on the um, Lake Duggan paddock, 125 millimetres at what they call a kidna, 115 at the Magpie paddock, <laughs> 85 at Cockatoo. So 25 millimetres at their homestead, but much better reports elsewhere on the property, including yeah. 167 in one of the gauges. 
Yeah, it's fantastic hey. to hear. Because oh, uh, there's so much stress out there with these fires. Yeah. So to get that kind of rainfall, well, when we spoke to David Connolly earlier on, he, he was feeling confident that that was the end of the fire season for his place. Mm. And um, we've maybe seen that replicated for other stations today, which is lovely. Uh, anything else we need to be aware of before you go? Um, no. no oh, Fishos, weekend ahead for Fishos. Anything to report? No, yeah, I mean, it should, shouldn't be too windy. Just, um, I mean, if, if you're just going on the harbour, it's just going to be those sea breezes and then watch out for any thunderstorms. Um, and then east to northeasterly winds across the, the Gulf, Carpentaria, Arafura Sea, you know, 10 to 15 knots. So should be pretty good. Just those sea breezes might be a little bit stronger. Okay, have a lovely afternoon. Thank you. It's been a good chat today. Much better than <laughs> the last good few weeks. Today. Yeah, yep. love it. Thank you. Thanks. Tales from the Tinny. That reel was nearly smoking, that first initial run, and it was a massive wahoo. Mine's a German lyricist called the Stickenbuschack. My daughter's crocheted me a little, uh, what I call the sack, and inside the sack are a couple of big ball sinkers, and that sort of hangs either side of that longer bit. Subscribe to the podcast. Disgusting amount of fishing-related irreverence. Fishing line, hooks, sinkers and lures. What was it called again? Uh, Stickenbuschack. Or catch it from 5.30 today on ABC Radio Darwin. Yeah, you few days back on the country hour, you might have caught our story about the half-blind Kelpie from Tasmania, who was named the best working dog in the nation after running more than 1,300 kilometres in 21 days. That was all measured as part of what's called the Cobber Challenge. It was won by that dog. I forget its name. Dan, can you remember? Ah, can't remember. Anyway, it came first, but guess what? A dog from the Northern Territory came third in this challenge. It's a dog from Matarenka. Its proud owner, Jackson Clifford, had a chat to Victoria Ellis about how Rose performed. Rose ended up doing 822Ks. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Um, Yes, so we did 822Ks and an average of nine... 9Ks an hour. I reckon that's pretty good. Yeah, it was over, what, 21 days of data they took. So, yeah, I sort of expected that. How did Rose go in comparison to the other dogs, not just the winners, but the ones who didn't do as well as she did? Um, well, I think fourth place there was 300Ks behind us, 250Ks behind us. Yeah, she went pretty good, I think, considering top three. So, What do you think made her do that well like how were you taking making sure that during that those three weeks that you were really going out and making sure she was working or did you do anything particular to try and get up those kilometers honestly no it was just like a normal day normal week there just went out like normal yeah didn't didn't try and put any more k's into her than i had to like i still sort of actually tried to reserve her a bit so she could keep doing it do you think that's the key to success is making sure that, you know, it's sustainable for your dog to do long distances every single day? Yeah, yeah, you've got to look after them when they're doing the big Ks every day, especially in the heat. There's no point having one really big day and then your dog's ruined for the next three days. You're better off just to have a couple of days, mediocre days, and you've still got your dog. If you and Rose had been in some of those cooler climates, do you reckon she would have racked up even more kilometres and do you reckon you might have even taken out the top spot? Yeah. Actually, I did. Um, I had the collar on her there for a couple of days down in Victoria. Um, at the end of the challenge, I did. I think I had a day. I think I had a day down there, and 
yeah, by 10 o'clock, she'd done 45 k's or something like that, I think. So a pretty big difference then. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And she wasn't, yeah, she wasn't she wasn't anywhere near as knocked up as what she would have been. She'd done 30 k's for the whole day in Mataranka. Yeah. Yeah, it goes to show, okay. doesn't it? Um, did you give her a, an especially big pat or a little special treat of any sort when you found out how well she'd done? I think I took her to work and let her let her work a few more cows. She was pretty happy about that. <laughs> it was a pretty good reward, I reckon. Fair enough. And do you win anything? What's the what's the the glory for you in all of this? Oh, it was more just out of my own interest to see, just to sort of compare my dog to other people's dogs, really. Just show how much work a Kelby can do. I get a little bit of dog food and a little bit of money into, towards a breeding program or or trialing, but um, I'll make the most of that. But um, yeah, it was just more out of my own interest. That's Mataranka-based stockman Jackson Clifford. Well done to Jackson and his dog Rose, who came third in that challenge. And the half-blind Kelby from Tassie was called Earl. It was Earl who took out the top prize. And I still struggle to wrap my head around that half-blind Kelpie doing 1,300 kilometres in just 21 days. That is a lot of work. This week on Landline, removing wool without shearing. So I work with the two most sceptical groups of people on the planet, farmers and scientists, you know. No one believes anything is going to work, but I think this will. And a treat for tractor lovers, the legendary Upton Tractor. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. And the marker report, Pip. How good is the marker report this week on Landline? I'll be taking a deep dive into India's buffalo trade. It's on the rise. What does this mean for Australia's cattle industry, in particular the live export trade? That's what we'll be talking about on Landline this Sunday at 12.30. G'day, I'm Ben Coots, Catherine Northern Territory, flat out loading trucks and supplying the rural industry across the north. We keep the ABC on at work all day so that our customers and our staff can keep up with all the news and latest happenings and you're listening to The Country Hour. NT Farmers Association has announced its brand new Chief Executive Officer. I'll tell you who it is in just a moment. But first, let's head to the Darwin Convention Centre. A two-day Bush Foods conference is wrapping up there this afternoon. It has brought together people running bush food businesses from all over the nation as well as some big, big companies like Woolworths and Palmolive. Down the Man Fitzgerald was down there this morning to check it out. Yeah, I'm down here at the National Sovereign Food and Botanicals Symposium, a conference which is all about bush foods, and especially this year getting more Indigenous people involved in the bush foods industry. And I'm here with Dale Chapman. Um, you do a lot of things, Dale. I might just let you introduce yourself to our audience. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, uh, I've been in the industry over 23 years and uh, I'm a chef by trade. So during that time, I'd, I thought, gee, how can I marry both my cultures together? You know, what I've learned as a chef and what I know um, from an Indigenous perspective. So that's when I came up with a range of products and opened my business 20-odd years ago called uh, Dillyback. And when you were getting into the bush foods industry 20 years ago, 
What was that like? Was there much commercially available? No, there wasn't much around. There was probably about five Aboriginal women at the time um, developing a commercialised product. So um, it was very limited and we actually had to start to build our own supply chain so, so that we were able to have all the native ingredients. I had to then source people across the nation to, to supply me so I could actually make the jam and the chutneys, you know, and things like that. So it was, it was difficult, but it, it has improved. Yeah, what have you seen change over your time in the industry? Yeah, so what I have seen change is a a dramatic, um, I guess, influx of information for for people, for bush foodies. So, um, and so many more um, Indigenous entrepreneurs are coming out now and producing a whole range of different things, you know. They're making creams and rubs and beverages and lollies and all gorgeous things like that. Um, so I think that is really helping the industry to move forward in a really positive way. And therefore, because we have so many lovely um, native ingredients, we're able to then bring that um, into a global audience now. And tell us about some of the products that you produce. We've got uh, one of them here in front of us. What have we got here? We have a, a bush tomato relish here, and I actually source these directly from um, Raylene Brown from Kungas Can Cook. And Raylene works very closely with over 300 um, traditional owners, um, women who pick this tomato for me. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous tomato. It's very high in magnesium, gives you lots of good energy. Um, and when you cook with it, um, it permeates, this beautiful smell permeates throughout your kitchen. You just go, oh my goodness, that's the gorgeous tomato. It has, a, it has like a caramel, tamarello kind of flavour. So when it's married up with, you know, regular tomatoes, um, it, it, it's sweet, but it has this little panquit kind of flavour to it as well. It's really lovely. And how do you like to use this relish? Oh, yes. Well, um, my mum and dad put it on toast in the morning. (laughs) Um, I like to mix it with cream cheese and make a dip. So, you know, when I'm sitting down in the afternoon with my feet up and a glass of wine, I'll make myself a little dip and I'll sit back and and enjoy that. And, you know, I think what it is is that the beauty of it is I know the story of where that tomato came from. I know the hard work that's gone in for hundreds of thousands of years to keep that particular plant alive here in the Territory, you know. And I think when you can sit down and savour something like that and remember your ancestry or, you know, First Nations peoples have, have are still doing what they did for millennia. So I, I, I like to sit back and enjoy that dish. And how important do you think it is to tell that story, especially from a, a business perspective and the customer's these days wanting to know where their food comes from oh definitely we we now have a new consumer you know out there we've got the 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 modern woke community i think they call them these days um where they actually walking down the aisle and they're turning the jar over and they're seeing the dolphin and they're making sure that this is you know benefit sharing is going back to aboriginal people and um that is what our consumer is looking for. So with the um, First Nations Bush Food Botanical Alliance, which you're here today about, um, that particular uh, organisation now is developing a consumer, like country to consumer model. So 
when the consumer receives my jam or relish, whatever, uh, they can actually then look back on on the on the storyline of that and their understanding that this came from Northern Territory. It might even identify the the tribal group that came from you know and the story that goes with that and our our new consumer is becoming very aware of that and they're really excited and wanting to support first nations entrepreneurs and you're seeing more of your products being taken up by the major supermarkets how have you found the i guess more people getting on board with bush foods over the years yeah it yes look it's really increased heaps you know and and we have a lot of, there's a lot of products on supermarket shelves that are not um, owned by Indigenous peoples. And uh, we now have Woolworths and Palmolive who are embracing the journey that Finbar wanted to, want to go with them and take them on. And they're investing in the future for us. So to see our product um, being put on the shelf in, in a, not just a niche way, you know, it's the new normal. And that's what we want our product to be. If there's people listening in Indigenous communities in the Territory, they might have a little spark of an idea or if they know of a bush food that, that they regularly use, how can they go about potentially turning it into a business? Yeah, well, that, that's an easy one. I think you just get on to our Finbar um, uh, website and make contact with us. Um, if you're in the Territory and you know Raylene Brown, Cougars Can Cook, she is the chairperson, so please just get in contact with, with Raylene. She'll hate me now, but <laughs> but yeah, look, uh, when it comes to comes to connecting, Raylene is very good at that. And we will then be able to help you and put you in touch with uh, the industry professionals to help you take a concept um, from country all the way through the, the pathway um, to sovereignty and have it on the shelf. Love your work. Thanks a lot for having a chat with the Country Hour. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. I'm joined now by one of the keynote speakers here at the conference today, uh, Kate Johnson from Palmolive Colgate. Kate, tell us what a, a big company like yours is doing at a little bush foods and plants conference in Darwin. Um, hi, yeah, so we're from Colgate Palmolive. Um, last year we launched a, a new range of products. Um, they're body wash and hand wash products, and the, the product's actually called Palmolive Skin Food. Um, the range uses um, Australian native superfoods um, as, a, as a key ingredient, um, and, and we've been on a journey ever since um, meeting some of the growers and finding out some of the, the fantastic and amazing and inspirational stories that go behind some of the ingredients that we're using in our products. Um, so for us, it's about joining this movement of trying to increase um, First Nations participation in native agriculture up from 2%. Why was this something your company wanted to get involved with using native plants in your products? Native plants are on trend um, and I think you know people are seeing them all across the supermarket aisle from chocolates to chips and ice cream um, but but for us um, yeah in, in personal care it's also something that that's, that people are interested in people are interested in um, the you know the unique um, ingredients of Australian natives um, and that's something that yeah we, we wanted to bring to consumers. Can you give us an example of some of the plants you use? Yeah, so we use some Davidson plum. Um, the Davidson plum that we use actually comes from Auntie Dale Chapman. Um, so she harvests that down on the, the New South Wales, New South Wales uh, north, north Coast. Uh, we use Kwandong peach. Um, we use river mint. Um, the river mint comes to us from, from Dominic Smith, and he's down in South Australia um, on Nagawake country, um, down on the, the Murray River. 
this is something that's relatively new for the company um, and with a, a big company like yours, you've got to make sure there's a consistent supply chain. What's it been like building that supply chain? So for, for us, we work with a, an extract company. So the, the extract company that we work with is called Native Extracts. Um, they're on the, the New South Wales mid-north coast um, and they're a fantastic company to deal with. Um, so we uh, we have that relationship with them in terms of that they, they supply the extracts to us. Um, but we've just been really fortunate to be able to develop some relationships directly with some of the growers. And in terms of moving forwards... Um, do you think this is an area for growth in terms of getting native products into skincare? Absolutely. I think it's a huge area of growth and a huge area of opportunity. That is Kate Johnson from Palmolive Colgate speaking to Dan Fitzgerald at the National Sovereign Food and Botanical Symposium, which has been held in Darwin this week. That's about it for today's country hour. Is there something I'm missing? Oh, that's right. That's right. After months and months and months, the NT Farmers Association has announced its brand new chief executive officer. Who is it? Just opening up the envelope now. Well done to Greg Troughton, who is the new chief executive of the NT Farmers Association. He will step into this role on December 4. A lot of our audience will know Greg. He was raised in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek. He's got a background in law, commerce and economics. In recent years, he's been the chief executive of Council Biz. Prior to that, he spent 13 years as the chief executive of the member-based Real Estate Institute of South Australia. In a statement from NT Farmers President Simon Smith, he says Greg's experience, credentials and achievements are directly aligned with the skills we see as essential to achieving NT Farmers' future vision and direction. He says we are really looking forward to working with him and introducing him to the team, our members and industry stakeholders. So you'll remember that Paul Burke stepped down from that role at the end of June after four years in the top role. And it's taken months, for some it's felt like years, for NT Farmers to find the replacement. But Greg Troughton announced today as the new CEO of the NT Farmers Association. We look forward to having Greg on the program as soon as possible. And we also look forward to having Paul Burke on the program very, very soon because one of his new jobs is being chair of the NT's Pastoral Land Board. Uh, that's all we've got time for on today's Country Hour. To all cattle stations who got some rain today, enjoy that, and I hope you get some more over the weekend. Keep it rural.